Hello, fellow time travelers. This is Sean from the Rusted Robot Podcast and the Soul Forge Podcast. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. What I'm going to ask people to do is whenever you're talking, just kind of lean in a little bit, you know, Sherry Sandberg style. And then if you find yourself just wanting to laugh, just throw your head back and laugh uproariously <laughs> because but otherwise, hopefully. yes, exactly. Otherwise it'll be picked up by the microphones and it'll cause a horrible echoing sound that is just terrible and hard to edit out. You're assuming we'll say things that will make people laugh. Yeah. Well, it has happened. It usually, usually does. That's one accidentally. Of, that is one of the delightful things about this podcast. Fortunately, it can sometimes just be mockery and derision. <laughs> That's also true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I don't know if you listened to the last one, but I mentioned you because we all ripped, <laughs> we all ripped the book to shreds. Okay. And I was like, <laughs> I would you love to me. see what Allison would say <laughs> to yeah. this one. We have to have you listen to that at some point because Jesus God. Which one? Oh, the, um, macro macro terror. Terror. the one about the giant crabs. The about the giant crabs. Ah, uh, yeah. is there just in general in sci-fi and fantasy and fiction with elements of the fantastic? Is there like a really good giant crab story anywhere? Like even in the Zodiac, it's kind of lame. <laughs> no. No, there really isn't. Have I mean, a trade-off. Outside of Crab Rangoo, no one ever really says, I love the crabs, or <laughs> that crab story was great. Remember the crab one? Like I will say, though, that the one uh, second season of the new series with the crabs and the superhighway where they sing Abide With Me and the Old Rugged Cross Gridlock. made an indelible impression. Those were the bad crabs. never forget that. That was the sequel. But I remember you telling me about it, but I hadn't seen the original. Yeah. But yeah. I was just so dumbstruck to hear them sing, like, two verses of the old yes. rugged cross, which yes. I don't think of as being, like, Amazing Grace. And I don't think of it as being, like, in the general cultural imagination and it's not at all. It's Welsh. Yeah. It's a Welsh, hmm. it's a Welsh hymn. Yeah. And Russell T. Davis is Welsh. I did yes. not know that. And the reason I know that is because that was my um, mom's side of the family are Welsh-descended settlers. Okay. And that was my grandmother's favorite song, hymn, and it was played at her funeral. So, like, oh, I was watching with my parents when it came oh, on, and we were like... God, and you were crying your eyes. A little yeah. bit, yeah. 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 Well, we were too, but for different reasons. Oh, speaking of the Macro Terror, um, the book that I showed you, what was the name of the book The Claws of the Macro. The Claws of the Macro, the Choosing <laughs> Adventure. I found a copy of it. I'm very disappointed from so, what I've seen. So when are we recording that? <laughs> uh, probably for the Halloween special. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Indeed. so we'll do it. Should I recommend all of our extra canonical books? Aren't you usually the master of recommending what we should read beyond our usual program? You were the one that came up with the idea of the what? The plotters. You were the one yeah. that decided oh, we who suggested the that. Oh, okay. She's giving you credit for that. Oh, thank yeah. you. So I'm saying, <laughs> yeah. we have our normal have, program of going through in the order in which they were aired, but you were, I think, of the person who recommends all the additional material. Yes, because it was between that and Venusian Lullaby, and you said plotters would be the better one to do. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which made somewhat much sense after we read the one about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, yes. and I still think that the author of the plotters was trying to do that better. He was. And, he and succeeded and did it much better. Much better. Mm-hmm. Much better. So, are we ready? Back to the book we read for this podcast. Yes, I know. We're trying to avoid it. It's interesting, but there we go. Okay, so here we go. We're so goddamn witty. Well, we're going to put this at the end of this episode, so people will get to hear it. Yeah.
Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the not at all minuscule task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Yes, folks, it is getting harder to find those adjectives to describe what we do. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally not-at-all minuscule four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not read any of the previous books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. I don't know whether or not to be offended by not being minuscule. I think he called us all fat, was my impression. No, 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 no. I didn't mean it that way. I'm, I'm it was a fat with a pH. <laughs> yes, indeed. I could have been talking about other body parts. It's a, I'm, I'm just giving you a good rip. You have it's... enormous middle fingers, for instance. Keep digging, sir. As I'm seeing right now, there's also our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time it is is I forgot what appellation we usually use for you because you have been gone for a while. Wise and witty. Wise and witty, The usual flattery. There we go. Wise and witty, Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello, the world. Yeah, I still have Jenny's down here for some reason. And then finally, as another special treat, we have another expert panelist who makes my credentials look as tiny as a miniaturized teenager, (laughs) Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hello. Good illusion. Yes, I try. There's so many illusions you could make to this book, and miniaturized teenagers is not the one I thought I would be doing. Oh, dear God. Before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page, won't you please? Oh, my God. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Even though there is a black market, apparently, for hardback Target books, and if I had known that, I would have just stocked up on those. Oh, my God. There's a book group on Facebook, and they trade in the hardbacks. The hardbacks are like crack now. Hmm. It's amazing. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. You didn't see the panelists' faces, so you don't You're know how to You're less likely to be them. arrested for having, uh, what did you have in hardback? Uh, was it Universe 4, Division 4? Galaxy, Galaxy, Galaxy 4. 4. Galaxy 4, yes. Yes, and we gave that, did we give that one to uh, Elijah Kaling, or did we give the, um, the audiobook to him? He got the, no, he got the hardback. Yes, we know you're listening, Elijah. Hello. Elijah. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. You're still giving us money, and we're still quite happy about this. (laughs) All these bad jokes about miniaturization come from the fact that today's book has, as a major plot point, miniaturization. And at least two years before the master turns up and starts doing it to everybody. Uh, Miniaturization. That is, not <laughs> whatever he did to yes. Adric to give him that, you know, erection in um, Castrovalva. No, that I book, did of course. Miss a lot. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. That book, of course, is The Faceless Ones. <laughs> Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Faceless Ones, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by David Ellis and Malcolm Hulk, that aired from 4867 to 51367, published by Target Books in May 1987. As of this recording in July of 2018, this title is currently out of print, 140 pages. This book was actually published only a few months before the Macro Terror was, which tells you something. We're still in that Horatius period. Horatius? In the late 80s, during which the editors of the range are scrambling, scrambling, I tell you, 
to adapt the stories from the 1960s that were never adapted because they're running out of things on television to adapt. And I also had a thought about that after we did the macro. Um, we're also in the period where there was usually about a year lag between the stories were broadcast and they were released as novelizations and we're dealing with the cancellation, the 18-month hiatus. Right. So you didn't have that unmade season 23 that would have been filling it up. So there wasn't even a current batch of new stories to do. So that's why we have even more of them going back in there. But we will be doing those books. Oh, good. We are going to do those three, weren't there? There were three. We're going to do those three. We'll um, be doing Slip Back? Yes. Pescatons? So four. And yeah, five. We're doing Pescatons. But that's going to be whenever that hits in the Tom Baker era, right, whenever right. that is. But yeah, you're right. We're in that slot, slot where they're trying desperately to find things to do and there's nothing on television to adapt. Right. So they're adapting everything else, which is fine because it's plenty of fun things which are slightly more fun than this. <laughs> um, it's really a shame, too, as you have to wonder what Malcolm Hulk would have done with this story if he himself had written the novel. That's important to note because we will soon become very familiar with the Hulk's work as a novelist. It's going to be a little bit of time, but we'll get there. He's incredible. He really is. He really is. He makes David Whitaker look like a newspaper journalist. Mm. Wait, is that a bad thing to be now? Well, <laughs> wow. All right. I should have said columnist. I don't know what I was thinking. It can look like David Brooks. That'll, that drags him. There we go. Yeah. It makes him look like David Brooks. <laughs> yeah. We, we don't want to be that mean, though. <laughs> Please, have some decorum. Maybe even Hulk didn't care much for the story, and there are plenty of reasons why that might be the case. This is his very first work for the show. It's a co-writing job, and it's not even the idea that he and David Ellis originally had for the story. What became The Faceless One started life as the big store, and it would have featured aliens masquerading as shop dummies slowly taking over humans in a department store, which, if you're thinking, yeah, that sounds vaguely Twilight Zone-ish, the after hours, yeah, it is. And on top of it all, it was originally a Hartnell story. <laughs> yeah, so it's not clear if someone finally noticed or even knew about the similarities between this story and the much better Twilight Zone episode, the after hours, but... By the time the story went into production, the setting had been changed, for better or for worse. It's not clear whether Robert Holmes heard the idea and then said, you know, I'm having that for uh, 1970s Spearhead from Space, but we'll note the similarities when we get there. While David Ellis did a lot of important work in television, Dixon of Doc Green, Zed Cars, this is the only who he did, so we're going to ignore him entirely. <laughs> we will, however, talk about Malcolm Hulk, because we kind of have to. He'd go on to contribute some of the best televised stories. He contributed to three and wrote five on his own, as well as some of the best novelizations, and we'll get to enjoy seven of those fully before we're done. Hulk was born in 1924, had a long and robust career writing science fiction for early British television, including co-writing Target Luna, Pathfinders in Space, Pathfinders to Mars, and Pathfinders to Venus, none of which I think still exist. I'm not sure about that. He was also an avowed communist, and there's a fascinating piece in Doctor Who magazine from a few years back about how the British government had him under surveillance, and it almost caused trouble for his career, but didn't. Hmm. He actually helped Terence Dick start his career, his own career, which is why Malcolm Hulk ended up writing for Doctor Who so frequently. Uh, luckily... The communist thing didn't cause him troubles, and despite his politics remaining heavily on the left for the rest of his life, he had a very strong career until his death in 1979. In any case, this isn't a Malcolm Hulk novelization. 
It's a Terrence Dix one. One of so, so many. And, well, Allison, we've gotten into the habit of having people read the back cover. You have not been around for one of them, so we'd like to have you read the back cover, if you would. And I actually enjoy this blur more than I have many of the ones that I've read. Okay. I thought it was actually very nicely, atmospherically creepy. In the summer of 1966, thousands of young people are taking their holidays with chameleon tours, and not one of them is coming back. When the TARDIS lands at Gatwick Airport, the Doctor is drawn into a web of intrigue and deception. To add to his trouble, Polly mysteriously vanishes. Or does she? The girl at the chameleon tours desk looks like Polly and even sounds like her, but she claims she comes from Zurich. Who is she really? Who is behind these abductions, and for what sinister purpose? Soon the Doctor and Jamie must face a desperate group of faceless aliens. Deadly Chameleons. So I thought, you know, and not one of them was coming back was nicely creepy. Yeah. It does give away a lot of the story, as every single one of these does. Like, I don't think we know it was 1966 until the end of the book. Oh, right, which is and, the big reveal. And that uh, the people are not coming back. But it still doesn't tell you, you know, the mechanics of how we get to that place. So I actually thought it, ended, it started with a nice splash. Okay. Well, while we're still on you, let's talk about what your first impressions were when you heard the title, the faces ones, and you saw the cover and all of that. What were you expecting out of this book? Well, I, from the title, was expecting more of like maybe a gothic horror motif okay. story. Um, and then you know, saw the cover of the book with the plane and then read the, uh, the blurb and actually found it very nicely seasonal. I actually read much of this on the beach. Really? So, so for all of my talking about beach books before, yeah. I actually easy, consummated easy. the yeah, act of reading the on the beach, <laughs> yes, with the, the brightness turned all the way up. Um, and that context may have affected the fact that I actually enjoyed this quite a bit. Um, I found it to bounce along very nicely. Uh, none of the twists were, were, were too uh, mind-bending, but once again, I'm never trying to figure out what's coming next. And it does have some nice twists in it. And I had, thought it had some good, creepy atmosphere. It's like the Muzak and the hallways and the overly officious airport oh. employees that did a nice job of bringing out the creepiness and the sort of the banal formalities of travel. Okay. All right. That works. Dalton, your first impressions of this one. Um, when I heard the name, I, again, I thought it was going to be something a little creepier than this. And maybe... I don't know. I've seen so many faceless or morphed, melted, whatever images at this point, or it doesn't face me. Whatever. You don't have a face. Okay. <laughs> Show me something you new. Were you were a faceless one. <laughs> faceless one, exactly. Um, then when I saw the cover, I immediately thought of Airplane. The red zone has always been for loading and unloading. There's never stopping in a white zone. Don't tell me which zone is for stopping and which zone is for loading. Listen, buddy, don't start off with your white zone shit again. Um, well, different um, genre. Yeah. <laughs> so I went from being, like, mildly creeped out to being, like, eh. And, yeah, just as I was reading it, I didn't absolutely hate it, but there wasn't a, uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot that really grasped me and interested me and made me want to, to care about it. Um, I also, like, immediately picked up on the fact that Ben and Polly were going to be left behind, even if it wasn't their own time. Like, I saw that coming. Like, oh, they disappear right at the beginning and don't reappear at all? Okay, yeah. Here we go. Lots of vacation time. Um, yeah, which I've kind of come to expect um, since I've been reading most of these, and as we've yeah, as we've seen uh, companions come and go, it's it's kind of 
looking back, it's kind of obvious a little bit, like, in the stories. Um, but, yeah, I didn't hate it, but it was not one of my favorites. That's interesting that the two of you should have done that kind of reversal. Yeah, we're going to have to see why. Trey, how about you? First impression. Well, my first impressions would have been as an 11-year-old. Um, and I found it very, very exciting at the time. Um, and I think mainly because it was all I knew about the story was from like, you know, a paragraph in the program guide. I knew it was set in an airport. I knew it was Ben and Polly's last story. And I knew that there were these chameleons who were kidnapping people. And that's pretty much all we get. So some of the twist in there, um, when I, I do remember it very clearly reading this, we were actually visiting my grandparents in Wichita Falls, Texas, and we went to the bookstore, and they had this yeah. in the Space oh, Museum. Wow. And, I remember being and I remember being very kind of like confused and distraught because the, they didn't have the number on the spot. Uh. You know, and that was just, and I remember like, so when we stayed at my grandparents, there was like this, they had one of those pull-out sofa sleepers. And what I would do is I would, you know, if you pull out a sofa sleeper, there's this cavity where the, and I would like tuck myself in and read the books in that little cavity. That was like my little yeah. hiding. So that's where I read this, and that was my first impression. Um, so then it was really exciting because I think it did what the novelization does. It created a picture of a story where you know the the surviving episodes they might not both of them might not have even been surviving at that point. Um, I think maybe only three. I, I forget which one was found first, but certainly none of us would have seen it. So. As far as giving me a new Doctor Who story to enjoy and to recapture it, I remember enjoying it very much and finding it to be an exciting story about um, when I revisited it again, I think it's a great example of a very solid Terrence Dix novelization. Um, I think it's very enjoyable. Um, any problems that I have with it would probably be more with the source material, the television episode, than I do with this adaptation. Agreed, agreed. And <clears throat> my first impressions of it, this is one of the few books I read as an adult, because by 1987, when this was published, I was already on my way out of high school, and I wasn't buying the books any longer. And I think I found this at a library in Louisiana, and it was the hardback. And I kind of wish now I'd stolen it. Yeah. <laughs> now that I know about this black mark back You'd have covers. $1,500 in fines by now yeah, from the library. Would, you'd I, pay, oh, how you'd pay. But then I could sell the book and make <laughs> up the whole $1,500. That's how much they're going for. It's ridiculous. But I probably read it in the span of like three hours and was just really underwhelmed by it. But I think that was when I was in grad school, and of course, you know, oh, literature, technically. And I wasn't much into the dicks. Uh, <laughs> no, I was very much into the dicks. you normally narrate your autobiography. <laughs> exactly. What I meant is I wasn't so much into his writing style at the time. Now, however, having listened to the story, having seen the existing episodes, now reading it, I'm not sure my position shifted much but we'll have to talk about why. So where do we start with this one? Well, I think, for me, I think dealing with the airport, because, you know, your comment about Airplane and uh, that movie, it, it certainly, you know, it almost is beyond parody. And I think this is where this book is dated in a way that, you know, some of the other ones haven't, because 
I think, you know, and I don't know the reasoning for it, you know, because it was supposed to be this department store, but they switched to an airport. And if you think about the mid-60s, if you watched Mad Men and that sort of jet-set era where an airport, like now an airport is boring, and our, an airport is just long lines and tedium, and we take tr air travel for granted. But at the time, you know, it was new and exotic and exciting. And the idea that there were young people who would go off on a plane on their own and go to another country on the sightseeing tour, that was, that was new territory for them. So it's kind of like, um, I have a feeling like, you know, some of the new series stories were, um, I have a feeling was the Bells of St. John wrote, like the aliens are on the Wi-Fi. Yes. And that was like very much because Wi-Fi was new and everyone's looking for Wi-Fi. And like even now, five years later, that story is kind of dated a bit. And, you know, imagine how weird that will look in another 20, 30 years. So I think, I think the fact that they were able to get to Gatwick Airport and do, and if you do see the surviving episodes, there's just a lot of long shots where you just see, hey, we're at an airport. <laughs> and, you know, and, and like even like the, the costume design for the stewardess, you know, who's there. And it's all that very exotic travel. And, and it's, it's, it's meant to be this very sleek, contemporary thriller that just has not aged well, well at all. Lots of chase scenes, lots of opportunity to like, look at this big space with all these cool people going to these cool places. Like, that's what I pictured in my head. Yeah, and, and they literally are running on the runway. I mean, they filmed it there. They are running so, on. Yeah, that's what I was picturing in my head. Was this very like mid-century, like it? It just to me, it didn't sit with this like sinister feeling. I'm supposed to. I mean, yes, it's like body snatchers, but it's. Just, I don't know. Something about it just didn't sit together well. The tones don't mi mix together. Yeah. No, they really don't. Interestingly, I think it worked for me because I was mixing in a lot of things that I brought to the story because. I was thinking 1966 and visualizing a lot of, I guess, asbestos tile. I didn't realize it was filmed on location. I thought it was a soundstage. Um, but I was thinking of like a lot of the 1960s aesthetics, but also the year this came out is I think the first time I flew by myself as a child to visit my grandparents, sort of like handed off to a flight attendant. Yeah. And it wasn't a scary time for flying, but actually was. It was exciting for me, but at that time. Flying already was kind of banal and conventional. You could send a seven-year-old to visit grandparents alone, and that was uh, not considered a, a too exotic a thing. But then I was also thinking about the 60s aesthetics, some of the, the rundown banality of the, the 80s by the time those facilities that were state-of-the-art in the 60s had had time to sort of uh, age and more like cottage cheese than like fine wine. Uh, but then I was thinking about the sort of modern post 9-11 uh, low-key menace of an airport where there is a lot of banality and a lot of waiting but there is also the vague menace of being pulled into a little room so i've been in airport three airports in moscow london tel aviv and never had anything bad happen until in london a friend of mine was pulled off of a plane uh she was from bulgaria she had a Canadian residency, but it expired while she was on the student trip in the country, and basically, it took her weeks. She had to like take a you know, train back to. I mean, she had to you know fly from London to Bulgaria, take a train to Romania to get the relevant visas and come back. And the idea of modern travel that anything could happen to you at any time if some official decides that you don't quite smell right. 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 So, the, and a, you know, a friend of but, mine, yeah, actually had you know her husband pulled into one of those small rooms 
in the last year or so. Well, that, um, they can make that really it, terrifying. Now, things actually. turned out fine, but I actually found you know to, Jenkins to be somewhat menacing. But it was because of that context that I was bringing in. Well, and more I think, than what's in the book. And I almost wonder if that's where some of the it, for me the areas of the story that aren't working because all the, the the casual attitude of like just being able to passengers being able to be at the gate who don't have tickets to on the yeah. flight. Yeah, which is like 1991 was the last time you know, that, do that. So, yeah. so you don't have yeah. you know there's there's a very lax security at this airport and just you know and how did they manage to lose all these kids? who are traveling with everything, with such a paper trail nowadays and a cyber trail, it, that you'd have to do some serious updatings. And I think, you know, focusing on the bureaucracy, which kind of taps into, you know, our frustrations and fears, that would be a way, if they wanted to, like, update totally. the story, yeah. that would be really, and I think really that's good. ultimately where it fails for me. Yeah, it's like, I'm just like, this is in the 60s. It's, it's an airport in the 60s. If it was now, yeah. And I may... Maybe not enough is made of it being in the 60s. So readers in the 80s and certainly readers now are kind of like, we just got kind of go to our regular airport and it's just not gelling. I wasn't thinking of the glimmer that you were, uh, that you described from actually having seen the shots of the episode. Yeah. And I was just getting that from the cover illustration. <laughs> so well, part of, I, I have my own issues with the story that have to do with how is it that the chameleons managed to get almost to the end of their mission of taking 50,000 young people off the earth and nobody notices it? My theory Postcards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. still. But my theory was that they were also supposed to be like on eight-week trips and the first ones aren't scheduled to come back until after the last ones leave. Well, I did some calculations on that. Um, in fact, there were some figures in the book that didn't make a lot of sense to me, so I actually did something I never do, which is math. <laughs> and, oh God, which chapter was it in? Because they were talking about the originals being stored in the car park. And that the first of those would start dying within a particular period. Mm. At, here it is. It's chapter 14. Um, the, the director tells the doctor it takes four weeks for the processing to become permanent. But if they already have 50,000 people, how long have they been at this? And is it already too late for some of their victims already? Uh, Let's conservatively say that the average plane in the 60s could hold 300 people. I actually Googled this. They could have eight flights a day using four planes. That's just London. They always talk about leaving from other airports. Oh, that's right. I hadn't even thought about that. Because to reach 50,000 just in London alone, they'd have to have been doing this for at least 20 days. So they have But they talk about kids leaving the other holiday destinations, going to London or wherever, and then never showing up from those airports either. So they haven't been at it for that, long. that was my impression that it was like a big everyone leaves in June sort of push, comes back in August, but they're not. But then that opens up the other big plot hole, which is how did chameleon tours get this far to begin with? Well, and I I'm still unclear as to are they miniaturized or are they in cars? The originals are in the cars. The originals of the airport people are in the of cars. Of the airport people in the cars, yeah. and the passengers are the ones who have been So Blade and... Got it. Okay, um, right. What's his okay. name? Spencer Meadows. Yeah, Spencer Meadows. Those folks are all in the cars, except for Meadows, because he's got his own and little crate. And had her own little thing, because she didn't want to, you know... <laughs> she so. did, yes. Hygiene is important to her. I love both versions <laughs> 
She's awesome in both in both ways, but it's like so many plotholes. And what I'm thinking is, like, as far as, like, maybe where some of the um, menaces lacking is, you know, just, I've been replaying how would this play out if this were done modern days. And, like, what they would do is they, chameleon tours would somehow hack into, like, their Twitter accounts and, like, post updates Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. That's how it would be done. But I was thinking what was lacking for the menace is we don't have any point of view passengers. Mm. So we don't have that menace of like, you know, if this was a horror thing, there would be like an introductory scene where like the boy and girl, it's like their first big trip together and then what's happening and they feel it and you'd see them like shrink and something horrific happening. You never get a sense from these victims of what what's been happening to them are they kind of like freaking out in this sort of stasis or, you know how aware are they oh my um, god and you know who that I, could have been it could have been Sam Sam Holly. Holly. Yeah. or Samantha Briggs' brother yes yeah. Yeah. and Terrence Dix generally does do prologues yeah. like that in his other books yeah. it's just at this point it's 1987 well, six episodes instead of four episodes to get through yeah that yeah. might have been yeah. it so he figured yeah I've got to get this knocked out in 140 pages there's right. no way I could do it otherwise that would be brilliant how many has he written by this point how many adaptations oh, by 1987 mm-hmm. a lot most of them okay. <laughs> it was the mid 80s he's tired he's had enough prologue for one evening thank he you he probably has in fact you can kind of see that in late Dick's books that they the the kind of energy that's there for the Pertwee novels in the early 70s just isn't and I'd say like it depends on the story. Like, if it's a Robert Holmes story, he tends to get excited about it there and amps that. it up. Or if it's, like, a story like any of the Third Doctor stuff that he would have been working on at the time. Right. He you then, were saying something earlier about this one seeming to be more of a tribute to Malcolm Hulk because see, you seem like... You, you felt like it was better than most of his from this period. Yeah, well, I, I think just comparing it with Macro Terror, there's, there is some effort here that... Um, I think it's really interesting doing reading the books this way because reading this right after Macrotera, I've noticed there's this continuity of, I don't know if holiday camps and vacations going wrong were just a thing. Yeah. But but there's that. But just just like with the sentences, like um, you know, on the second page, it says, when you know, he takes the time to describe each of the companions. And you have a sentence. The second was a far more striking figure, Colin, a very pretty girl with long blonde hair. She wore a very long jacket and a very short skirt and some light-colored material, the outfit completed by high white boots. And even just like, you know, if we're using some grammarians of like absolute phrases there with the you know, outfit completed by, there's just a little bit of a higher level of sophistication that when you look at the simple sentences that Ian Stuart Black was writing in. That's true. You know, there's, you know, and, and just the odd vocabulary word like idyllic and thing. And so if I go back to my 11-year-old self reading this, this is this is good stuff for kids, kids yeah, that yeah, age to be yeah. reading. It's definitely more advanced than the last book. Though I will counter that <laughs> <laughs> with something that happens later in the book when we get Meadows uh, describing what the chameleons have been up to in all this time in Chapter 12. And something I noted was that Meadows explains the plan, the whole plan, in just under a paragraph and in reported dialogue. And it's something of a cheat at that point because you have waited until the 12th chapter to right. find out what's going on and you get it in like three three sentences. But you, don't, wasn't there another podcast like, you? don't you have a thing with reported dialogue? I hate reported okay, dialogue. So John Lucarotti. 
is horrible. Yes. Marco Polo, remember how much I bitched about that? The English professor has yeah. just outclassed me. What's the term that we're using? Reported here? dialogue. It's when instead of having the character say, da da da, he said, oh da da, she said, you have it's a, a description of it, a summary, a paraphrase of what. So something and that's often prefaced by, as you know, and then not in recapping this case. everything we've seen so in far. In this case, okay. it's the revelation of the whole damn plot. Uh, let me see if I can find it. It's in chapter 12. And it's Meadows telling them everything. And he tells them everything in just under a paragraph. Where is it? There it is. It's bottom of page 108. But what use are our young people to you? asked the Commandant. Meadows explained that the bodies of humans and his race were in some way compatible. Chameleon scientists had devised a way of using strong young humans to transmit a kind of blueprint. By stealing their identities, the chameleons were able to attain stability. Now that's kind of wonky, I understand, but... Would you have been happier if he had just said, Meadows said, and then just copied in that whole speech? Strangely enough, yes. Hmm. Strangely enough, yes, because I think it was also that I had just watched the Telesnap version. Mm-hmm. Meadows has a lot more dialogue. Than- sure. I guess for me, and this just might be you know, subjective reference, I kind of like some of the reported speech thrown in there because otherwise it can get too talky that I think doesn't land well on the... And I think if it's a lot of exposition, this is an, an efficient and economical way of getting through it. Yeah, I guess so. And it is towards the end of the novelization. I'm mm. sure at that point, because Dix is, for the most part, writing these in chronological order. It's just... And off to the editor. Right. And by that point, he's probably saying, oh, God, all right, 140 pages is coming up really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get this in here. Nobody cares at this point. Let's just get to the end of it. Let's get my check. I read that entire paragraph in the voice of Charlie Brown's mother, and <laughs> that was perfect. Yeah, yeah, they want them for some reason. They want to eat them as users, use them as batteries, or have them, you know, tutor their cocker spaniels, so whatever. They, they want the human. Nah, nah. Really? Okay. Aliens want to do something with the humans. Yeah, somehow use them or metabolize them. It's about why they're doing it. Huh. I think it probably would have been a better story if we hadn't had the explanation then. It's just like you're stealing our kids. Give them back. Hey, what did you do to my poor little kids? Probably the new series would have done that. Would there be a good reason, though? Like an adequate reason? Oh, well, you're you're using them for as dog trainers. You need your dogs trained. <laughs> you can keep all 50,000. Yeah, we don't need them. A mere formality. Rude to not have an explanation. Any explanation would just... The more you try to explain it, the more it would fall apart because there are so many logical things. So maybe it's just better yes. to just better kind of do this abbreviated, hand-wavy sort of thing. And Maybe that's it because I really wasn't all... I, I picked apart this book and the story a little too much. The plot makes absolutely zero sense. And then it does go back to that whole issue that we have throughout with these novelizations of these weren't meant to be books. These were meant to be an exciting family adventure that you watch one installment of 23 minutes per week and then you forget about it yeah. and so there's, there is there's that. like like the whole like i got impatient reading it with like the whole bit with like the goldfinger death ray <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. why is it so even on the page it's so slow <laughs> yeah. and, and why like, are death rays always so lagging behind, lagging behind. Yeah. the giant mirror yes. she just so happens to be <laughs> with her. i was more i was more worried about jamie burning his hand than i was about them dying because i knew they were 
I did, I did imagine it was kind of like a funny oversized, like she has a complete beauty kit in the purse with like a vanity and eight, di- yeah, it has like eight different cosmetic items at a full size. Not seen Pauline Collins. You could believe that she has a full size. <laughs> I actually thought it was very funny. Oh, I've got a huge mirror with me in my bag. If you want to kind of Google the hat in the one telesnap. That oh yes, yes please do that. It is something to behold. I did not realize going in that this was going to be the one where Ben and Polly left. I knew really? it was going to be this one or the next one. Okay. And I found it disappointing that they were not in it more. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of like when they... Uh, oh, the hat. Uh, uh, so fancy. The hat. Samantha in the TV series, that's her hat. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a cake in the shape of a hat. Well, <laughs> it's covered in John Nathan Turner oh, was so impressed with that hat that he gave the Potrieve two of them in Castro Valva. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw that recently, but uh, I thought Samantha was going to be a new companion. She, yeah. Okay. Is yeah. She, is she? That, she was meant to be. Okay. And the actress that, was that, like, decided not to be. Oh, okay. I thought they were totally leading into yeah, she and Jamie were. get yeah. on. They and were. The new they movie. were totally going there. Much yeah. to Paul, much to the detriment of the show, and but it's to like, Pauline ah, Collins' see, uh, benefit. It's eventual. been real. Because Pauline Collins, as I uh, spoke of last time, has become just this storied actress of stage and screen in Britain. So it's probably a very good thing that she didn't go on to do Doctor Who, or else she wouldn't have gone on to do Upstairs, Downstairs. She would have done um, Shirley Valentine, which is a well-regarded movie, even though I think it's just boring. Um, and what was the other series? Well, there was a... No Honestly. Well, there was a spin-off that she did, with she did from did. Upstairs, Downstairs. Yes. The name of it, I'm forgetting. The names of the I characters, actually, names of the characters were played. Played. I have it on disc over there on the bookshelf, and I can't remember the name of it to save my life because we haven't watched it. I guess I'm used to the modern convention of... Unless a, an actor has particularly infuriated the producers to the point where they want to shuffle them off quietly. Usually when someone is written off the show in a reasonably amicable, amicable situation, their last story is about them. Yeah. And they do something dramatic and heroic, or they betray everyone, and they kind of go out with a bang. This was totally a whimper, and they, don't, they weren't in bad health like Hartnell. So that no, was disappointing. What it was is because you had the episode installments, so this was a six-part story. So their contract only lasted up until episode two. Ooh, and then what they okay. did is the very they... bit where they come in, that was like a pre-filmed gotcha. So that's why, especially in the 60s, the companions, they start doing more of that sort of thing in the 70s and 80s um, with the companions, making it their, their goodbye a little bit special. Yeah. But a lot of, like with Dodo and some of the others, the way the cycle worked, it, they might be mid-series yeah. when their contract well, was Especially up. Dodo. I mean, well, it was she like. Oh, had a good sen- emotional sense. No, she didn't. Steven. Oh, Steven, Steven did. Yeah. Yes, because that Steven was. Steven was like weeping. That was actually the end of his contract. Yeah. And it, you felt it to some degree, even if you didn't on the page. But he, he got to go out with not a bang exactly, but it was. He but definitely a got a moment. A yes, yes. Here they just kind of are shuffled off. Yeah. And the really departure <laughs> story does make a big point of it. Oh, that, God. It, that one's one that's set up very much for that. Well, that's going to be in the bumper volume that we're going to get in the fall. I feel like they were gently and humanely euthanized in a way that wasn't terrible, yes. but I wanted something a little bit more. But it was like they definitive. In the end, like they were like, "Yeah, we're kind of over this." They at least gave it that. Yeah. They at least made it the companion's choice, choice. so that yeah. when you're listening to this on audio and you're seeing the telesnaps, it is a little bit more heartfelt. Of it an is ending. almost exactly yeah. the way in the books that we saw um, Ian and Barbara leave. I guess. Really? It felt like you go that that's far. how it felt. It's like, oh, well, 
I guess we can go home now. We want to do that. Let's do that. Yeah. In the book, it feels a little tacked on the end. Yeah, and I think that's because the doctor even is kind of like, well, if you want to. I didn't get to go home, so yeah. Go home. <laughs> I feel like even with Barbara and Ian, though, we have a pretty long time to get to know them and build a relationship with them. And then they were like, well, we've been fighting to get back to here, so this might be our yeah, only they chance. Had two years. They had two years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's development in those characters. Yeah. Even and the slides. books are better written as a whole. I have a nice prefigurement of this with Ben saying, I kept trying to make it to a ship on time. He's probably thousands of years late by now. He's not going to make it. Yeah. So I thought that was a nice... You know, bringing things full circle, yeah. I don't know, Tony, if I ever pointed this out to you, but it's like a, one of those things that, like, in the No Fans not. If you go back to the War Machines, because this set takes place at the same time as War Machines, the Doctor has a line in the War Machines that he feels this nervousness in the air whenever the Daleks are around. Yes. And then it kind of... Oh, my God! Yeah. Oh, my fucking God! I hadn't even thought about that. that and I don't must... think it was planned. But, but oh my this, like, lord! Because the Daleks are, would indeed be in love. Yes. Okay, we're gonna spoil something for these two, well, even the though they already thing. know what the next book's gonna be. The next book is Evil of the Daleks. This Which is happening know. on the same day ah. as the War Machines and the heart and the Doctor. Which is one of their greatest adventures. One of their greatest adventures, which which led me, of course, to snarkily say, "Unfortunately, this was not one of them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the one we just finished." But yes, he he is sensing the Daleks. Yeah, that's they're there. They're just not there. They are. You think it's Wotan, but maybe he's actually. Oh my God, that's brilliant! What else do we like about the book, Allison? I'm really surprised that you liked it so much. What else did you like about it? Yeah, why'd you well, like it? I just it? thought it sort of bounced gently along with a plot that, like I said, I think I brought these personal experiences in airports to it, where I think Louis C.K. used to do a routine about how we complain about the aggravations of modern marvels. And specifically, he talked about flights and phones. Yes. And, ah, oh, my flight was late, you know, and then we had to wait on the tarmac, and then it was hot. And, was like, and then did you fly through the air like a god? <laughs> and I thought that this was a nice uh, bounce back and forth between these extremely rigid, uh, I'm not sure, civil servants, not the term, but um, administrative figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and the airport director is, if I recall, he's just himself, right? Yeah. He's not been replaced. No. That's, That's just, just his, his, his natural, natural psychology. Natural um, these sort of, you know, uh, rigid people who, and uh, these sort of uh, genuflections one goes through going through security and passport control that are much less in the 1960s than they are now. And then the wonder of, and instead of going to Europe, they're going to go straight up in the air and into space. <laughs> and I thought that that was pleasant. I did not get much of a sense of this doctor at all. And I've only read, I think maybe, this is maybe my third book that with this true. doctor. That's true, you're not possibly as with the Tron doctor. But, but I, I didn't learn anything additional or feel anything additional about his persona no, from this book. It could have been the first doctor. Honestly. Maybe not quite like, crotchety enough, but it could have been almost any sort of godlike well, wizard, there, the smart there. person. Yeah. Probably Trey will agree with me on this one. The Troughton Doctor is really hard to capture on the page. That's that's the conventional wisdom because either what people do is they kind of um, authors, especially when you see in some of the spinoff fiction, they either try to do it just by capturing some of Patrick Troughton's mannerisms, and 
and one one of the things that Trotton did so well is like his mannerisms would be silly, but his eyes would be doing something else. Yes. And and those sort of nonverbal cues are very difficult to convey on the page without overly describing it. So he either becomes very vague and interchangeable, which is I think kind of happens to his character in this one, or it becomes almost a caricature. And yeah. and like I was saying, I think you know the reason why the Trotton episodes have the reputation, a good reputation has m far more to do with Troughton than the quality of the that story. That makes sense. I, yeah. Because he's, he's a really good actor. Um, well, the first book, that, the first book for the second Doctor, I got that immediately. I fell in love with the second Doctor in the first story I read. Ah, uh, but that's John Peel. But and it's John Peel's doing the next one. It, it's exactly, it's, it's saying he, exactly what Charlie's saying. He has a good grip on the, it. The way that it's written affects it, because if it was handled differently in this book, if we got some of that, like, quirky, mischievous nature, then it would help. Even in that weird, like, Holiday Land airport that I'm imagining, if it was, a, if it was kind of turned a little bit, yes. that would have helped me like it more. There's this, yeah, there's, like... And it's interesting, it's around episode two, which is one of the missing ones, so you just have the telesnap stills, but there are little gags here that I don't think Terrence Sticks included, like when they're hold, they're doing the typical thing of like trying to hide behind newspapers, and the telesnap very clearly shows that Jamie's, Jamie's is upside down. <laughs> yeah. And then, they do mention oh, okay. that it's upside down okay. in German. And then there's, or like, or like there's a bit where like they're in the photo booth, like hiding out, yes. and then at one point some ducks in, and they all stop and take a picture, and like, yes. there's, there's they do talk of, about how the person kind of backs slowly away. Yeah. <laughs> but that's three those grinning rigmortis. Again, those are visual gags that work on the screen that don't yeah. play out. None of us were laughing. It's kind of like, no, oh, okay. okay. But yeah. seeing them on screen, even in the telesnaps, brilliant. Yeah. You know, it's brilliant I actually did laugh at the photo booth one. They talk about the, really? the, yes, the, 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 the unearthly toothly, toothy grins the three of them <laughs> had. No one just kind of like slowly lets the curtain close. Well, of course. I wondered how Jamie knew what to do. Yeah, I... So this is only <laughs> the second... Jamie, second yeah, one I've is. read with Jamie, and I'm just always. annoyed by the whole uh, noble savage thing. Oh, like, God, it's, I know. I'm sorry, the 18th century is not that long ago. Wait till the evil of the Daleks, then. They oh, write him yeah. almost like a... <laughs> like they picked up an ancient Greek from the 8th century or something in a way that I well, found... Well, that's why they killed Katerina so quick. His entire personality is written, it seems like, as a kilt and a Mike Myers Shrek accent. <laughs> but... I have, I've only seen the actor extremely briefly in the oh, Atlantis yeah. oh, uh, yeah. volcano the, uh, story. Oh, uh, not fear, from the deep, underwater menace. And yeah. remember, the first one I read him in, he uh, slaps Polly in the face as a means of calming her down. So, yes. you know, that's not the actor's fault. But um, Oh, by the <laughs> way, when I interviewed Nigel Robinson about that, he, he um, I think he said that he wasn't sure if it was in the original, but now he feels very bad about including that in the novelization. Oh, so he said to say to you... Oh, that that's uh, he probably nice. would not include it now. My impression was that he, his character is a collection of visual and linguistic tics, but maybe the actor brings a lot more to it that yes. I have not experienced. Fraser Hines on screen is a marvel. And the chemistry he has with um, the Doctor is, they're, yeah. they're a real double act. Troughton and Hines are amazing. They did manage to convey some chemistry with him and Samantha that seemed more na like a natural yes. And that makes it even harder to get at that she didn't take the role and didn't continue because that would have been just wonderful. And said so we get Victoria. Or maybe that was the high point, though. Well, maybe maybe that was all that character, or as written, had I think not, not the performer, but the no, but I the, think it's the performer. 
because you've got Pauline Collins acting her heart out and doing an amazing job in a one-off, and you've got Fraser Hines, who is just really good at this. The two of them together are electric. Then you get Troughton in the mix, and you've got this three-way triangle of electricity that's just astonishing. And then it goes away. It kind of comes back with Zoe. It kind of comes back with Zoe, yeah. And I think when we're talking about, like, possible companions, I just have to, like, I... We mentioned her earlier, but Nurse Pento. Oh, God. (laughs) And I think this is the sort of thing, like, the formula for Doctor Who is to have, like, him with these younger people. And one of the things I think is very interesting that, like, with um, Jodie Whittaker's Doctor, she's going to have a companion who's an older man. And and, in some of the audios, they've taken the time to pair the Doctor up with an older companion on a few occasions. And it always works really, really well. And the few bits where we get with the doctor and Nurse Pento where he doesn't have to talk down to her and he doesn't condescend to her. And she's kind of stoic and she just kind of like, this horrible thing's happened. I'm not doing it, but like the right thing to do is for me to go on this mission. And that's, and you know, she doesn't have many lines like in that, but like there's the fact that I remember that character so strongly. There's something about that character that I really like. And, you know, I think how interesting it would have been to see the second Doctor with a more mature woman who's got her shit together, so to speak. In fact, I felt the same way, and this is going off topic a bit, about the 11th Doctor Silurian two-parter, and I can't even remember yes. the two-parter, but the um, Indian actress. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, please make her a companion, because she, she plays off Matt Smith so beautifully. And the oldest companion I've seen is Donna, but she's not written as having things together. She's written as older than the other companions, but very flighty yes. and, and immature. And I, 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 love I love her as a character, yeah, but it's not anything like Nurse Pinter. But he's referring to uh, Evelyn Smythe, right. who is just an amazing companion for the Sixth Doctor. And so Evelyn was how old in the audio? 50s, 50s, 50s or 60s. She was, there. She was getting she's approaching getting retirement, approaching age. retirement <laughs> age. Yeah, she's a history professor. Mm-hmm. So she's a perfect companion. And, you know, we've got to say just a moment to give the, the performance of Maggie Stables and as that character was just amazing and she's gone now. But, yeah, they need to have something like that. So maybe a more Hartnell-like companion is maybe what you're talking about. That could be interesting. I think, you know, you're just talking about aliens and that is one of the things I do really like about this story. Thank you for bringing us back, yes, um, <laughs> the chameleons. Is... Their, their plot doesn't make sense, da 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 but this is one of the first times, and we see that Hulk will continue to do this, where so often in science fiction, an alien race is very almost racist caricature that all, all, all Martians act the same. All Tavleks act the same. And here we have, um, I think that's a Farscape reference. <laughs> you know, that's... Um, well, but, but, but DS9 even tried to address that at some point, saying, all right, there's variation among the Klingons. They're not all the same guy. Right. <laughs> so one of the things that I think, especially in the mid-60s when this is written, to have the bad aliens disagreeing philosophically on the proper course of action and then inviting a more collaborative solution rather than just blowing them all up or wiping them out. That's that's yeah, great, and, see and with the I think, and it's 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 clumsily in some ways, but you see the heart is there and the intentions there, and you kind of see that this is where Malcolm Hulk starts going with a lot of his more moral and morally ambiguous stuff. Because, um, and and the and the doctor holds them accountable; he doesn't give them a pass. But and and there are moments of ruthlessness, but it's 
you know, where he rips the one armband off and it, like, or one of them does die and, and you know, and they kind of have to back off. But that's, I liked that it wasn't just, in a lot of stories this would have ended with their big um, space station blowing up. And that didn't happen. And some people might feel cheated by that, but I think this is actually a much more positive message to send. So how would you compare this to the flesh in the new series? Some similar elements and then some things that are very different. I just rewatched that when I was in St. Louis. And that still strikes me as probably the best 11th Doctor two-parter of mm. all of hmm. them. Because it's just amazing. It fits together beautifully. But as far as the flesh goes, yeah, you've got that same sense of they're not a monolithic unit. They all have their own individual thought processes. It's not just us versus them. And that is kind of what the episode turns on. I think it's different in that... And this is what I don't understand about the chameleons, yeah. is, like, if I were in an accident and my face was disfigured, and, you know, for whatever reason I lost my face, I would still have my identity as Trey Corte. And that's one of the things that like was really puzzling to me. It's like, you you have this accident, and maybe you need to like ha- be able to pass, so to speak. But why would that erase? Why would the why would the physical erasure lead to a sense of identity erasure and, and lead your race to extinction? Like y- you can have other identifying markers, you know? Yeah, that. In fact, that's probably the biggest plot hole in the whole story. I was confused about the nature of the creatures. The Doctor seems to have no problem pulling the plug on them and just letting them implode and dissolve. Which is amazing, isn't it? Because the Trouton Doctor could be pretty bloodthirsty. So I was uncertain if we were supposed to be sort of taken aback at how, how cavalier he was about this. Or if there was no sense in which those bodies were the individuals that they were just sort of... Oh, my God. Sort of like prosthetics. It was, it was challenging for me to see which way it was supposed well, to go. here's a possibility for that one. That the Troughton Doctor is always going to come down on the side of humanity. These chameleons have stolen the identities of humans. Those, humans those identities will revert back, though, to the humans if he kills the chameleon. But he didn't seem to have a sense of killing something so much as just shooting the tires out of a car oh, yeah. so much. He didn't he, he he seem to be on the side of not acknowledging them as individuals. They're just these sort of... Shells. Yes, yeah. yes. More, More like, like the flesh is treated at the beginning of that story by the humans, but then they come down in a very different position about what they are. And, and the way he tends to treat Cybermen. Well, and, and this too, like just you talking about it, makes me think more like it, it's really like they're kind of stealing like a soul. Yeah. In a way. Because they get their memories, they get their personality, yeah. but they yeah. still are their chameleon self, too. And the other thing is, and thank you for bringing that up, because there was one other big thing that had me worried about this story. All the scenes with Polly when she is working for the chameleons, because it's not Polly, it's an overlay on Polly's personality. But still so has some of Polly's memories yeah. as well. So obviously the chameleons... some false memories because there's that whole like yeah. I'm from Zurich I'm and from the, Zurich and that and she's one who actually takes a different name. She says she's Michelle Lupi from Zurich, which all the others, yeah. all the others, others are saying no. I am the person that I look Except like. Except for her, 
Which doesn't make any damn sense at all because of the chameleons. Unless who that's do that. her job. She was assigned that job to discredit the doctor and Jamie because they were sniffing around. Which is fine, but that means that the chameleons can do that for anybody. They shouldn't have to steal identities. Why not just put her on the plane and send her away? Why use her? Well, well why can't it? Yeah, why? Yeah, why can't it be like? It could. Could it be something that would be much more? It's almost like the Macrotera. Could this have been a much more mutually beneficial thing? Like, hey, can we just like make a photocopy of your body print? Yes. Like the Zygons do in the um. Yes. The the new series Zygon stories. And that would have worked. Where that's you know. It's like we're gonna live among you. we'll, We'll have. We'll borrow your face, or like Romana does. Yeah, we'll have a doppelganger of you, but we'll take a different name, we'll have a life And then we'll just go off in a merry little way. Why do do they have to screw over people's lives and... Probably because we're thinking about the story a lot more than yeah. either Ellis well, or Hulk like, would have. But there's something about the armbands. They have to be in proximity for it yeah. to work. So that might be the Except issue there. Except even that doesn't work because well, if they're up on the space station... Right. <laughs> right. They're a little too far away. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Song Screwdriver. Oh, God, no. Thank you for bringing that up. What did you think? I immediately thought, was this in one of the books that I missed? No. That was my thought. Is this a massive anachronism? It's not supposed to be there. I was like, hmm, did I miss something? And then, yeah, just looking at your notes, it's It's Terrence Dix putting in something that probably would have been useful to have in the original. In fact, really useful to have in the original, and it doesn't seem to really stick out at all until you realize Patrick Troughton's not going to whip that thing out, vibrating and all, until Fury from the Deep. A bumper volume. Yes, exactly. It's not going to come out until October. But does it make a similarly kind of underwhelming appearance? It's just kind of like... No, Jamie notices it. The Doctor announces it. He uses it. It's kind of cool. It has its kind of Legend of Zelda da-da-da-da. Kind of. Would I not budge? No, it won't touch it, I'm afraid, Jamie. Oh, well. Have to use this. What's that? It's a sonic screwdriver. Never fails. There we are. Neat, isn't it? Hmm? All done by sound waves. And then we don't. And then I don't think we see it again until the early games. years, do we? War games. That's right. He does use it. Does that's right. So yeah, you're. It's an anachronism. It's a okay. big one. I was. I was thinking the same thing. I haven't read the last three. Did I miss the introduction of this as a plot point? You have not. Yeah, that's that's Dick's. But that's been to me an interesting thing throughout all the ones that we've read is seeing how authors choose to retroactively insert concepts of, well, especially the concept of the Doctor regenerating yeah. before it's introduced in the show, sure. and it's. Uh, You're thinking about Ian Martyr and the whole thing about two hearts and everything and uh, Ray Yes, Air, right? yes, it's sort of a contemplation of his mortality and his many lives. Oh, Galaxy Four, yeah. Yes, yes. Would he have been thinking about this yet? He would not have been, and it's jarring, but it's interesting. I think it's interesting thing, though, writing it 20 years after this is written, when these things have already been have in the intermediary time been introduced as standard parts of the character. And it just makes me wonder, um, you know, if Malcolm Hulk had continued to live in, like, because he was still writing novelizations until he died. So, 
you know, if he had gone around to this, I wonder, because, you know, all this that they were talking about identity and those certain philosophical questions, that's what he did so much of. And I'm not going to name which book of it is, but there's one book in particular where he writes this. There's two where that I can think of where he does third-person limited omniscient from the point of view of the monsters. And it's brilliant. And, like, what he could have done maybe with the chameleons if he had taken that approach... I, 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 that's, that's, I, I feel like there's, this book is, having read the other Malcolm Hawk books and knowing what he was capable of, like, there, this just feels like the book that could have been. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, there's... Come to think of it, yeah. yeah, because War Games was novelized as late as 79. Right, I think that was, right. the, that was yeah, the last, last one last he did. That was the last one he did, yeah. And that's why that one feels kind of thin. But then it's a ten. Well, and they, that well, was when they, they still had to reduce the page count and, yeah. you know. There's a lot on screen that we're not going to get on the page, but it's a lot of running around a, for ten. Yeah, he summar he he uses he summarizes that, and that's the other thing that he does very well that he restructures things. He's better at it though than oh, Dix is. Something else I don't like about what Dix does and Dix does in this particular story is a lot of parenthetical story storytelling, like. The doctor didn't see it, but Meadows was sneaking up behind him, and it's like. Ugh. So, so I mean, I'm curious because because that's certainly what happens. That's that's very stage direction, script yeah, direction. Yeah. How yeah. do you write that without the parentheses? Because that shows a little too much artificiality. So just the removal of the parentheses, you think would so the words could be the same. Yeah. I'm a huge punctuation Nazi. You know this right. about me. Right. So when it comes down to markers like that... That makes it seem like just a little extra yes, or, you know... that's going to throw me out of the text. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Because it reads as an aside. Thank you. Yeah. I remember exactly thinking that. as a child that it meant if you were in a big hurry, you can skip this part. I thought it was... Li- <laughs> and I, I remember a couple months reading a book. I want to finish the chapter before we get to our destination. I won't read the part in the parentheses. That's why, that's why you teach my students. Like, I say parentheses, you literally go... Eh. And then if it's a dash, you're like, hey. Well, I'm also thinking about the worst use of parentheses ever in a Doctor Who novelization, which, if we're all lucky, we'll be here in, like, five years and we'll read it together. Time in the Ronnie. <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about. A hologram is a three-dimensional... It's like, really? Really? I know you're aiming this at 12-year-olds, but I'm not 12 years old. I don't need to be told in parentheses what a fucking hologram is. Thank you, Pip and Jane Baker. Uh, a Even though 12 year olds shouldn't be dealing with the fucking holograms yet. They should be at least 18. That's true. <laughs> Maybe 16, but That's similar true. So in get your parents' hologram. permission before you put that credit card number in. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's stuff like that. It pops me right out of it. That and... One other thing that I want to say that Dix is not doing well in this book that I haven't noticed him doing before. Foreshadowing. Little did the Doctor know that what was coming would be one of the third-rate experiences of his entire life. <laughs> it's something like that. I was like, why do But he you wasn't do so pretentious to say tertiary. <laughs> tertiary, that's true. He could have. But he does it not just once, not twice, but three times by my count in this book. See, I think the reason that I like this a little bit more is that I had very low expectations for it. And instead of this being a missed opportunity, it feels to me like making a little something fun out of nothing. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not, it's not you a silk try. purse out of the sow's ear. Okay. But it is a nice little mini leather novelty I, purse. I, it's I, perfectly I pleasant. I so I don't think there's anything really deep here that no, he's missed or failed. I think he would have to create out of thin air. 
TV story, not his yeah, novelization. Of it, so. uh, didn't love it, didn't hate it. It's I mean, just kind of meh. sometimes it's on the nose. I, I think of Ben's line where he says, I don't stand out much. And it's like, oh, honey, that's why you're not going to be here for much longer. It's not your fault. Yeah. But yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I, I will say that over the duration of the series that we've read that was not written as a series in the order we've been reading it, right. um, that I've been disappointed that even though I know these are not written at all in the order that we're reading them, it does feel like writers slowly and predictably lose interest in the different companions in a way that seems disappointing. Every single one has felt to me as if they trailed off. And this was another example of that. Once again, it's better for Ben and Polly to be gently euthanized um, then just kind of stick around without any more personality left. But that's that's a trend I've not enjoyed. I'm not sure Dix ever was interested in Ben and Polly. In fact, I'm trying to remember... This may be his one-time writing. Smugglers. 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 Right. Oh, he was more interested in them then. Yeah. Because yeah. we didn't mind that. But it was their yeah. first what journey. What we minded yeah. was the... Uh, was the whole Treasure Island thing? It was. It was their first journey. So there's. There's a much. The, the, the story itself places more emphasis on this is their first trip. In the I was Antarctica. excited about. There's. You know, Stephen. Oh, they're gonna have an astronaut, and he's gonna be really interested in the scientific side of things, and how does the ship work, and maybe he will help them fix the ship or figure out how to control it, and then no, he's just gonna stand there with a cardboard cutout and eventually leave. Which is kind of what happens with them because Polly gets more to do here than Ben does. But then Polly has always gotten more to do. We're going to have this alien teenager who is educated mostly by tapes and has lost everyone she knows, and how will she interact with other people? Eh, and it's not interest in her. And she ends up becoming a Greek myth. I feel like they all start with great interest and potential that is rarely realized. And it's, it's interesting to me that this seems to read so clearly in the books that are not written chronologically and they're written by a variety of people. So it's clearly not like one person writing five stories in a row about this companion and then running out of steam about how to characterize this person. It's, I, so is it, is this, does this reflect the series faithfully? Really Do the writers of the series does. I mean, get rid of it? And you're going to get some interesting bits where one companion gets introduced twice. Yes, indeed. Um... Because of when they were, so like, you know, her, her fourth TV story would have been the first of her novels to have been written. So they created this whole new introduction for her. And then you, but then she's introduced and when they kind of got around to novelizing her first TV story. So you do get some moments like that. And I think, I think the problem is, is often the writers are more interested, you know, in in their own story ideas, it's more much more it's much more of a plot based series than a yeah. character based series until we get to the very end. Yeah. And if we're yeah. still doing this in eight years when we get to Ace, <laughs> then we will have then they, they they finally and I think maybe that's just how storytelling changed because the the last companion they had in the classic series in the eighties they really started moving more towards like what they do with the companions in the new series. She changed and developed and transformed in major ways that. With many of the other companions, that that didn't happen. There, there are more plot functions, but Ace was a changed woman, and in her her journey was very much a focus of the seasons, and that's kind of where they picked up with like the new series, where it is very much about the I companions was about to ask and their you, journeys. Trey, if you re- recalled any other companions that went out better, or at least at the same level 
as when they were introduced because I would I would argue Joe Grant does. Joe Grant has a very subtle character development that works very well yeah, for her. Yeah, and she has a very good, strong exit story. Yes. Yes. Compared to her introduction. Yes. I just rewatched Hand of Fear on Twitch, part of their marathon, and I'm still struck by the fact that Sarah Jane Smith leaves the TARDIS a very changed character. Leela, same thing. Romana. Romana. Romana, same thing. Oh, God, yeah, Romana actually does leave on a plateau. In fact, better than she was before. And there is a little bit of this in the books with Ian and Barbara, where I always forget who wrote the Crusaders. I should remember this. Whitaker? But at the beginning, there's, there's a pretty lengthy description of each character where they are now, and they talk about how how changed they are from when they first arrived that on the TARDIS, both internally, and then the part that annoyed me is Barbara is described almost exclusively of how differently people would observe her, observe yeah. her yeah. instead of how she feels differently. But then by the end, we have this concept that on the one hand, by the time they leave, they have a romantic connection because of their adventures together. But on the other hand, how could anyone else possibly relate to them and what they've experienced? And it's not, not as if, ah, I guess I can't do any better than this other person's have the same experiences, but they are so transformed by them that they are in a way cut off from other people in their original time because they are so different now with the things they've seen. Think, that, yeah, that worked, and, yeah I think Whitaker probably would agree with John Peel's interpretation of that, that they're together because of the adventures, not because of, yeah. I, I, that they like each other as well. That they always that did. They really but are. they really are set apart. That's why I have a big problem with the short story that claims that Ben and Polly didn't end up together as opposed what? to the big, yeah... Ah, but, but the Finnish kind of audios may suggest the five companions. Yeah, story. Big Finish yes. has them together, and that's the way it should be. Whereas there was a short story, and I can't remember who wrote it. Was was Joe Lidster, I think. Yeah, it was Joe Lidster. He should know better. <laughs> Although I think if you squint, maybe when they had that reunion, maybe they did rekindle something, and then they got married. So maybe. Maybe, but. Because uh... it is an older Polly who's. It is an older Polly and older Ben who are meeting in 1986 in a hotel room as far down in the southern hemisphere as they can and knowing that Mondas is up in orbit and they're having a, a toast because they know they're down there and doing this with the doctor right then, which is awfully sweet. But as a married couple, I think that would have been even sweeter. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, because I, I, have, I have to say this. They're not very well characterized. They never have them, but I'm going to miss Ben and Polly. I feel like they were well characterized at the beginning. Yeah. And then it just kind of trailed off, and we had to just hold it in memory. Because Jamie. <laughs> well, that's, that's <laughs> a big part of it. Quite yeah. Literally yeah. what it was, because he was stealing all the lines. And in this one, he comes into his own, and we realize, oh, we kind of like Jamie. Yeah. And we like Sam, so why didn't she go with them? Well, I think... I mean, what, what Allison was saying about the characters, I mean, the companions often are very static characters, but in the classic series, even the Doctor is very static. And I think when you had the books like The Plotters, that, were for me, was a lot of the appeal of those missing adventures because they would finally give character backgrounds and stories to these characters that we saw fleetingly on television. You learn a little bit more about their background, and that was always um, part of the appeal of those expanded and, and the big Finnish productions do those as well. Sure. Like and, unless they gave them, unless they gave them a fatal STD, and they left the TARDIS with that same disease. I'm sorry, who was that? Dodo. Dodo. 
died of VB. And then gets shot in the head. And then gets shot in the head. I forgot that. Yes, she did. She got involved with a journalist who was looking into the doctor and got shot in the head. Uh, dead dodo. Seems yeah, there kind was of a... blasphemous. Well, there was a period... You can't have a companion die of an STD. That's... There was a period where they didn't think there would be a new series. Story. They didn't think there would be a new series. And it's kind of... You know how, like, there's, like, the sad fanboys who, like, everything has to be dark and edgy in order to be cool. So that was what they thought by making it adult-like. They were they were making we everything as dark as possible. Let's make it really gritty and give the companions yeah. an STD. And there, there'd yeah. be, like... Some violence, like there was a story where there was like a second Doctor Jamie and Victoria story where there's like all sorts of cannibalism oh, going God, on. Right. Like this is a Doctor right. so, so they they sometimes stretched it a little bit too far. Yeah. Um, that's a pop culture cycle where you have something like Tim Burton Batman or something that a lot of people really like, and there's a dark and gritty piece. Where like they're like, oh, this is actually bringing something interesting to this character of this story. And then there are 175 grim, yes. grueling knockoffs, and everyone finally puts down their bl- razor blades and starts writing comedy. And, and I think that might be it because with the, the 90s, 90s until the, the 90s, next until the next grim thing. The 90s thing is when most of those books came out, and yeah. one author stands out, Jim Mortimer. Yeah. Every, yeah. in fact, a joke is made about his writing by another author in another book where they talk about Mortimer's work and it's, oh yes, I love his books, everyone dies. And it's true, everyone does die. Except here, in The Faceless Ones, which is just kind of like, <laughs> But it is, it, it's a happy ending and I, I don't know, I'll just go back. I really like, I, it's not the most dramatically satisfying conclusion to have like two people just kind of talking and this and, and this sort of unspoken agreement without any verification whether the chameleons followed through on it <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, what is it the showrunner said about i haven't seen it but the new flash series that we write flash as a blue skies character uh ben and polly are not grim and gritty dark characters who suffer terrible things they are blue skies happy characters and i thought it kind of worked that in a story about, you know, summer vacations gone wrong, they actually do kind of fly off into the sunset. You get the feeling that they're going to have fun adventures, and I'll be on the ship for a couple of years, and I'll be done, and they'll go on to have further sunny adventures, and they're not going to die of STDs or be shot in the face or anything further like that. They're going to sort of... Their, their adventures the, will be the happy. The doctor asks him, asks her, do you see much of Ben? And she says, I see all of them. Every day. <laughs> it's very really, good. It's lovely. And she says, yeah. you didn't think we were going to work out, did you? And I he says, no, I honestly didn't think you were. And it's really quite lovely. Well, but they he, also should have like a sort of breezy, happy sensuality. And I think yes. I talked about when they first introduced that I, in my youth, overdosed, overdosed on the, the Beatrice and Benedict dynamic of oh. the the couple that bickers all the time or yeah. the tragic couple which is a different kind of story and it can be challenging to write happy-go-lucky in a way that's enjoyable and compelling and that's i feel true. like even though they were underrepresented and undercharacterized in this story the overall arc of the characters does still pull that off yeah. they don't leave in agony or they don't leave because it's time to go because we've seen such terrible things like oh cool we're home i can make my yeah. ship we're going to be together. Either that or the gonna... weeping angels send them back in time where they can't be visited ever. I think, I think, I think it's really interesting what you said um, about, I think the phrase you used, something like breezy sensuality or something mm-hmm. like that. And a, a sexuality that doesn't have to be um, 
like grimy, if that makes right. sense. Right, no, no. Yeah, like because um, Anna Kuwils, like the actress who played Polly, I mean, a breezy sensuality, even at her age that she is now, she still carries that. I mean, she was very, very glamorous. She was beautiful. and But um, if you ever meet her at the convention or anything, she is so warm and positive and a little bit mischievous and a little bit, fr- and yeah. so much. And I think, you know, you, with Polly on paper, you do have a bit of a flat character, and Annika really puts herself into it. And so you have this very charismatic character on screen and on audio and that that you haven't I think it's remarkable that you haven't seen or heard the character as much on TV but that phrase breezy sensuality would be a great way to describe Annika Wills. I've seen some stills in a few minutes but I think the first two or three we read with him in there did communicate that mm -hmm. well I I wouldn't have picked it up from this book though right 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 right. not from this one there's so little to get from this one <laughs> but shall we go to Goodreads? I think so. Do we so. have anything else to say about it before we move on to Goodreads? As we always do, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment somewhere that I can see it. Damn. Yes, exactly. I'm pretty fine with that. You even call me Tony. I don't care. So that we have the chance to see it before discussing the books ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for the story out of five stars is 3.57. That is slightly higher than Macro Terror because Macro Terror was someone like 3.2. Here's some sample reviews. Sarah Samus, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, gives it four stars and says, As someone who has traveled without my family as a teen, lucky you, I connected with the promise of adventure and the fears older family members must have of something happening. The opening scene with the plane nearly landing on the TARDIS caught my attention. Airports are exhilarating and potentially dangerous. Other reviews have complained that it would be easier for the tar- uh, to just move the TARDIS than scattering in all directions. Given the TARDIS's unreliability and propensity to break down, I'd run too. My only complaint is with the way things wrap up. After so much buildup of mystery and misdirection when things are finally sorted out, the Doctor and his companions fix things very quickly. I think this is more an effect of the mandated novel length, oh yeah, than of the original plot, but I can only guess. Yeah, it resolves much quicker on paper than it does in the televised version. This is true. Stormhawk, who we've heard of before, gives us three stars and says, Every Doctor Who story contains unlikely elements. Boy, howdy. Many Doctor Who stories stretch the boundaries of imagination. (laughs) Ha, you weren't kidding. A good many Doctor Who stories grab your credulity, twist it about a bit, and then snap it like an overstretched rubber band. The Faceless Ones is one of these stories. That even amongst the alien hordes that are bipedal humanoids and speak Royal Shakespeare Company English stands out in its absurdity. But that doesn't make it any less fun. Particularly when half of the broadcast episodes are missing and the only way to experience the story is through the medium of the Target novels and nobody wrote them better than Terrence Stix, sorry I have to disagree there, who remains my favorite Doctor Who author although Jerry Davis is running a close second. Oh, you poor deluded child, you. Uh, the TARDIS materializes and discharges, discharges, the Doctor, Jamie, <laughs> Pop- 
We're back to dying of an yes, STD. Exactly. <laughs> the doctor, JB, Polly, and Ben on the runway of uh, end of a runway at Gatwick Airport. As usual, there is an alien plot afoot, but not with the usual end of world domination. The ending is a bit weaker than most Doctor Who stories, yes. But whether this is a fault of the original script, yes. Or expediency resulting from the reconstruction of the story, yes. Is unknown to me, at least. We know it. But that doesn't make it any less fun. And finally, Adam James gives it four stars in one of the most amusing reviews of this book. The more target novelizations one reads, the more difficult it is to find anything clever to say about them. You have just summed up our podcast in one sentence. Thank you, Adam. Terence Dix is a genius at writing efficient children's fiction. Digestible sentences, concise descriptions, just enough difficult words to make it challenging for a ten-year-old. Terence Dix is a gangster. In terms of lost Doctor Who stories... That would not be appropriate for children. Well, it's appropriate in terms of Terrence Dix, if you don't mind someone having a speech impediment. In terms of lost Doctor Who stories, The Faceless Ones is pretty high up on my list of please, God, let Ian Levine find this one in the middle of a third world country's dilapidated TV station. This story is always great fun with lots of dashing about and terrific Dr. Jamie slapstick hijinks. Please, Ian Levine, at least pay some of your bizarrely large fortune to have the story animated. You can even dub your own voice over for Ben. Nobody will notice or care. It went need to be dubbed over because the soundtrack exactly, exists. Exactly, but we are talking about the end of the game. I'm sure I could find But we're also talking about Goodreads writers who are Somebody's more... Somebody's deep in their feelings there. That's true. So let's find out your opinions on how many stars you would give this out of five. Dalton, how many stars would you give this one out of five? <laughs> I'm going with two whole Holy stars. Holy shit, man. Uh, like I said, I, it's a big shrug. Yeah. Yeah, not a fun yeah. read, not an easy read. It was those. It, it was those, but it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's, not a whole lot There's not a whole lot for me to grasp onto here. Like it, like the other reviewer said, like it gets racked up really quickly. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of character development for me to really hold on to. There were lots of. Uh, secondary characters that I just confuse with each other. It's a problem that I have. have, Too many characters introduced, they're given a name, and they show up for like one chapter and then they're gone. And it's just like, eh, why? Why? Focus on... Yes, I get that there are plot points you need to get across, but... Yeah, we didn't even talk about Jean Rock, did we? And and why she's like a brand name? It's never Jean. It's never Miss Rock. It's always Jean Rock. Jean Rock. 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 (laughs) Um, Yeah. I don't know. I... Two, yeah. Two stars? Two. two. Okay. That's awesome. yeah. generous. I'm going to go with two stars, but whereas Dalton's two is brutal, mine is fairly kind. I read it in the appropriate environment. About 94 degrees, blazing sunlight, wandering in and out of the lake. It was a pleasant adventure that I let wash over me. No, it stands up to zero interrogation in terms of the mechanics of the plot, but as a sort of emotional experience, I thought it had a nice juxtaposition of the exciting and terrifying with the banal that kind of characterizes travel with oh, we're walking, we're walking, we're walking their officials, oh god we're going to space or your citizenship is being questioned and I the major thing I enjoyed was I think sort of you know the bouncing along 
uh, plot that didn't make sense but was perfectly enjoyable. I was disappointed that Ben and Polly didn't have more of a big send-off. So okay. two for me. Trey? Trey. Um, um, again, my method of this is looking at how well it works as a novelization of a Doctor Who story. And so then I would give it a three star. It's, um, it's a solid adaptation of what was on screen. It certainly does the job well of conveying to readers what was on screen, especially for a missing episode. It's, it's, it's faithful, but, uh, but does it expand? It doesn't, it doesn't do anything wrong in those terms. Um, all my criticisms of the story have to do with the original TV version. Um, but I don't think it goes to what John Peel or um, David Whitaker does, or even what Terrence Dix does and some of his other things, where he really takes the time to expand and improve upon the story. So it's, it's, it's good hack writing, yeah. is how yeah, I, yeah, I, I, like I would. Yes. And so that's how I would, so I would say it's a three star, it does what it says on the 10, and no complaints okay. there. And for me, it's somewhere between those uh, extremes. Two point seven five stars i really had to split this one because to be honest i didn't like it uh i didn't like it the first time this time it was kind of a chore i like the original story though which is just bizarre i think dicks could have done much better so to be blunt about it it's not the best dicks i've ever had but it's certainly not the worst dicks i've ever had so that would be 2.75 out of five that's about right yeah, we'll see. We will see Terrence Dix at his heights later. We really will. Reading these in story order, we're gonna get some of his best works later, which is lovely. Are they gonna be earlier or later in the order that he was writing? Earlier. Some of his earliest novelizations are probably among his best, I would think. So he's tired by the time he writes Faceless One. He's overworked. He's overworked by this point. And I think that's why towards the very end he starts improving because then they had the other you had like Nigel Robinson helping out and the original screenwriter. So Terrence Dix well, can this, take the, the time. That'll be this era though when other writers are helping. I think we're going to hit his low point when we get most of the Tom Baker books. Yes. Yes, that's when there was like no yeah, one else helping. Like, so I'm saying like this is why this would be something like this would be more. It's not his, at him at his weakest, but it's not him yeah. at his best. Yeah. You know, he's he's tired, but it's. It's still not where he was cranking out like ten of them a year, yeah, eight of them a year, or something like that. I'm trying to think. Was there ever a season that he wrote all of the books for? I don't think so. I think there's at least one or two other authors uh, every season. Uh, season fifteen. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So when we get there, it's going to be dicks, 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 dicks. Lots of dicks. Lots of dicks. In fact, I think. all of Leela's stories. Oh my God! That is right. That is right. Let me think about this for a minute. Oh, God, I think you're right. Yeah, but we'll all be dead by then. That's what I was going to say, word for word. Yes, exactly. We can hope for longer lives so we can get to that season of dicks. So, thank you, guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we look at Evil of the Daleks. And we may even have a continuation of our interview with John Peel in which we finally ask him... Why? And you know what book I'm talking about. But we'll get there. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at 
the uh, Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast on one word with no spaces. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up or comment at YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperdalic forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter. We're at, at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, email us at dwtarget at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye bye. Neat, isn't it? Hmm? All done by sound waves.